in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Nathan Lutz. How are you, Nathan? I am doing great on this Easter Sunday. It's, uh, it's, it's been pleasant, and goodness, the weather has gotten just perfect. Nathan, you and I, we're becoming the new dynamic duo around here. It does seem so. It does seem so. When we've got a we, we've gotten a slew of really good movies to review. So, and this is no different. This is no different. But we are more than just a gruesome twosome today. I'm happy to introduce my good friend and much more of an authority on this genre of movie that we are tackling today. My friend John Resendez. Say hello to the people. Hello, hello, lords and ladies. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. And he even knows how to address the lords and ladies of the round table. Now, uh, normally, we, uh, Nathan and I and, and the rest of our hosts, we have a process for how we select the, the guests. And they provide some movies. We, we go back and forth. But when we selected uh, Akira, that's what we're covering today, Akira, uh, when it was on the docket, I said, I know a guy. Let's get this guy. So why did my mind go to you, John? Why, why were you the one that I needed to pick for this movie? Uh, I'm your most resident weeb. Uh, I'm your, uh, I'm your anime dude. I think the amount of times that we've hung out or, uh, been talking about movies or been talking about TV shows. And then I bring up some anime that you've never seen is too many to count. So yep, never seen. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like that thing in my hero academia. Don't know what you're talking about. Oh, well, yeah. it's kind of like one piece. Nope. Don't know that either. Uh, so aside from Akira, what's the last movie that you saw? John? Um, I, I saw it was, uh, well, the full title would be Edge of Tomorrow, Live, Die, Repeat. Uh, that was the last movie that I saw, which is also actually based on a Japanese light novel anyway. So it's sort of, you know, tangentially related. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that, Nathan? I've probably heard of it at some point. I've never seen it. Live, Die, Repeat. Essentially, it's Groundhog Day for war movies uh, and, and a sci-fi movie. I, I like it a lot. Sounds like something I'd like to check out. I think we've got a couple years before we're allowed to, though. Remember, only 10 years or older on Retro Movie Roundtable. Of course, of course. Yeah, Edge of Tomorrow was the later title. The original one was Live, Die, Repeat. But then the released version that you can now get on like Amazon is both of them combined together. And then, just to make it more confusing, the light novel it's based off of is titled All You Need Is Kill is my favorite of the three <laughs> titles <laughs> all all you need is kill da, 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 da. i will say the last movie i saw was knives out uh Ooh, fantastic movie great. fantastic movie i saw that it late. great I, I i thought it was great too it it does unfortunately include one of my pet peeves which is a bad southern accent and uh, i will say I've, I've also been told not to watch the show true blood for that same reason uh, what about you, Nathan? What's the last thing you watched? 
I mean, fortunately, this movie does not have a British guy who's trying to feign southern U.S.dom, but uh, it does have Chris Pine starring as Captain James T. Kirk in the third of the reboot Star Trek movies, Star Trek Beyond, which, you know, I'm really sad that these movies didn't continue because they're fun. They're a lot of fun. There's a lot of Trekkies out there who would say that they are somehow lesser or almost destructive to the franchise, but I gotta say, they work out just fine for me, and it's a good time, as much or better than many of the old ones. Don't crucify me for this. Um, no crucifications here, but I will say, uh, I liked those. I actually watched those more than I ever watched the older Star Trek movies. Uh, I, I, I ordinarily would say I'm not much of a Chris Pine fan, but I did like him as, as Kirk. Um, now, I've got, a, I've got another question for you, John. Who is your favorite big screen animated character? Got to be a movie. Um, I would go with um, my first thought is Sweet JP from a movie called Red Lawn, which is a fantastic racing movie set on a planet that is the race course, essentially. Tons of destruction. Uh, I think it has one of like the highest frame counts for a movie ever made, uh, or anime movie ever made. It's absolutely nuts. And he's rocking a kick-ass pompadour and drives a sweet-ass car. It's awesome. Sweet JP rules. Sweet JP mm-hmm. from Red Line? Or Red, Red Line? Red Line. Red Line. It's a cool name for a racing movie. What about you, Nathan? Mm-hmm. Favorite big screen animated character? Edna Mode. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go with that. Uh, I, and I almost, <laughs> I almost went uh, Pixar with this. Uh, I guess is that Pixar or DreamWorks? It's one That's of Pixar. It's Pixar. Yeah. Um, I almost went with that. I, uh, I, I didn't realize that there's gonna be a little connection here. But my, the first thing that came to mind for me was Judge Doom from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I don't know why uh, that was the first one. I realized, and I've realized my whole life, I love the villains in Disney movies. Uh, and so after thinking Judge Doom, I realized that, no, it's Minister Frollo, the hated Minister Frollo <laughs> in Hunchback uh, of Notre Dame. Hunchback of Notre Dame, yep. Yeah, he's great because he's just pure, raw, bad guy. You know? Yeah, yeah, pure, raw, bad guy, something that um, with this movie we're covering today, I don't know, I don't know if we exactly have that. Um, but we are not talking about Disney today. We're talking about Katsuhiro Otomo's 1988 film, Akira. Uh, this movie starring, or starring the voice acting of Mitsuo Iwata, Nozomo Sasaki, Mami Koyoma, Taro Ishida, Mizuhu Suzuki, and Tetsusho Genda. Uh, came out in 1988, um, but its only award that we could find was it actually did win a Silver Scream Award at the Amsterdam Fantastic Film Festival in 1992. So uh, at the time, I guess, not able to be uh, uh, dispersed throughout the world like, like some are uh, nowadays. Uh, this is the thing, the weird connection I mentioned. The number one movie that year in the States was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, something I never would have guessed about It was a good year for adult, for adult animation. <laughs> I don't know if we can say that in today's day and age. If we're talking about adult animation, uh, I don't know if we're talking about the exact same thing anymore. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a different uh, award category for that nowadays. Um, but hey, people love this movie. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, the critics' tomato meter is ninety percent. The audience score is ninety percent. 
higher even than the last movie we did together, Nathan, Titanic. Uh, surprised to see such high ratings. This is not the this is not the genre that your everyday film audience pretends to try to enjoy and then and then goes to Rotten Tomatoes to to drown in low ratings. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, I it, I will say I I first watched this movie in 2018. What about what about you, John? Um, when's the first time you saw this? Was it young in your life, or did you did did you grow up a little bit before being introduced to Akira? Um, in in terms of my anime career that's what we're gonna call it like uh, it's it started off with uh it started kind of late like most um i was maybe 19 or 20 27 now so maybe eight years ago or so i started watching the regular shonens the one piece naruto bleach and sort of uh just tv shows about dudes with strong power um and then as I, I, right it was like a little bit after that those initial shows that i started watching these uh some movies ghost in the shell akira um and it didn't really like sink in super hard with me um i remember watching it and i remember some of the scenes from it thinking it was really cool um uh, but i don't think that i appreciated it nearly as much as i do now um uh, watching it sort of after a long time of watching other anime there's a lot of things that i can appreciate more it yeah. is cool there's no doubt it was cool when you first and when you rewatch it it's still cool i think we can all agree on that uh, what about you, Nathan? When did you first see it? Uh, this is the first time that I've actually watched Akira. Uh, I have previously seen uh, really the only other anime that I've actually watched before was the Ghost in the Shell, which ha I, having known this, having known Akira from reputation, I can really see now having watched this where Ghost in the Shell and a lot of other movies get their inspiration, because this is clearly a pretty foundational foundational film. I would say so, too, even though I'm not a normal pedestrian, even in the anime genre, uh, you can tell that this is foundational for the genre itself. Now, none of us, I think, were available in 88. Does it hold up? Seeing it in the 2010s, 20, we're in the 2020s now, if you saw it, you know, later in life, I think it holds up. What about you, John? Yeah, I think it holds up. I think the only thing that's kind of odd is, especially to maybe to more seasoned anime watchers out there, is that the the art style, specifically like heads, has just changed so much over time. Uh, the size of some of the characters' foreheads is just uh, not done. Nobody draws that way anymore. Uh, for better or anime for worse. Heads. Anime, anime heads. Anime heads, yeah. So for better or for worse, I think the style is... If you don't watch a bunch of old anime, maybe a little bit odd, but I don't think that it's bad necessarily. Um, and in terms of just the animation quality, oh man, that holds up easy. Yeah. yeah, I noticed the size of the heads. I thought it was refreshing as as a as a real life big headed person. Uh, Nathan, do you think mm -hmm. it holds up? I absolutely do. I think that this is a movie that really doesn't show its age in many places at all. Uh, I Good think point. the thing the thing that really achieves that for it is that it's really not trying in any places to do things that are overly showy. There are a lot of really subtle things that it's doing all over the place, which come off as really artistic and really inventive. But there's nothing that attempts and fails to do some sort of an effect 
that wouldn't have been possible at the time, despite there being a pretty good number of computer-generated effects in this, um, both literally generated by computer as well as effects which were guided or like plotted by computer calculation and then replicated in the movement of backdrops and things. So that's interesting to see. I think you hit the nail on the head by saying it, it doesn't fail to do anything that it tries, uh, which is which was a delight when you're watching it and rewatching it. And uh, there's a lot about Akira to discuss, but before we do, we're going to take a quick ad break. And if you haven't watched this movie before, beware, spoilers lie ahead. Direct, in-your-face, unapologetic spoilers. You have been warned. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. We are back from our break, and now it is time to hear Nathan give us a plot summary. Take it away. Thirty years after the nuclear annihilation of old Tokyo, a young biker gang led by Kaneda tears up the streets of Neo-Tokyo. But after Tetsuo, Kaneda's protege, encounters a telepathic child and is abducted by the military, Kaneda must fight to discover what has happened to his friend. With the aid of Kei, a member of the anti-government resistance, he uncovered secret experiments on mutant children, but not before Tetsuo's new abilities manifest and he escapes to find the mysterious first test subject, Akira. A fierce battle follows, but nobody, not Kaneda, not the military, nor the other mutant children, can stop Tetsuo from opening Akira's cryogenic prison. But when Tetsuo finds only dissected remains inside, he loses control of his powers and begins destroying everything and everyone around him before the remains reform into an even more powerful being, creating a singularity which consumes Tetsuo and Kaneda. The other mutant children enter the singularity to rescue Kaneda, leaving Neo-Tokyo behind forever. I may have left out certain other plot lines that we can definitely discuss because they are important, but maybe tangential a little bit? Yeah, I think that's fair. I I mean, even just hearing you read that back is like, you know, in the beginning, it's like, oh, Canada, biking. And then it's like, by the end, it's like singularity. Like it, the, <laughs> from where it starts to where it ends. If you hadn't watched the movie before and you heard that, you're probably like, what kind of freaking movie is this about? How do they encompass all that in one movie? <laughs> and, and also, I'm I'm wagging my finger at you if you haven't watched the movie before because I told you there'd be spoilers. But he did. Uh, yeah, I'd said it. This is a movie that stands up even knowing what's going to happen. I would agree. There is just so much to take in with this movie. But summarizing the movie is a, a difficult task. But I'm gonna I'm gonna start with kind of a broad question here because you you described a lot that happens in the plot. So we have the summary, but. I want to hear, and I'll pose this to both of you, whoever wants to chime in first, because there's so many tangential threads coming in and out of this. What is this movie about? 
Ooh. It's a tough question, uh, right? The, when you think about the it. primary oh, yeah. plot thread. Y- yeah. It's the question that this kind of movie, I want this to be a regular stage of our podcast, because I think that that is such an important question, especially when the movie will result in different podcasters having different answers. I have some answers that I jotted down, um, and, and some of them stood out more than others. So I'll, I'll toss out some ideas and maybe, maybe they'll, they'll cling to what you're thinking. Uh, we have the relationship between two teenagers who grew up together. Uh, we have we start the movie in kind of gang worlds, so a gang culture and gang violence. Uh, later, we see several levels of society, uh, class warfare de- dealing with each other. Uh, we have government in shambles from a previous prime minister and and trying to fix things. On top of that, we have a godlike entity uh, who is around uh, <laughs> underneath the city. Um, and chilling, just literally chilling. He's freezing. He's so cold. He's yes, he he's is freezing. Um, mm-hmm. And and then we've got with uh, Kay and Ryu, we've got a human rights issue. We've we've got the idea of experimentation on children. Do any of those stand out as what what is what is this movie really trying to say? It's it's tough for yeah. me. I I think um, I think combining a few of those. Um, sort of the human rights uh, or rather like political stuff. And then also even some of the human rights things with the experimental stuff on children and this sort of like pursuit of science as the, uh, for the sake of the pursuit. I mean, even uh, Dr. Onishi during that, you know, was, was not going to terminate a subject because of how magnificent the, uh, his revelations were upon viewing things. And there's this sort of cyclical nature. So if, if I'm going to sort of tie a bow on, what my point is here is that I think the movie is in large about human abusiveness through pursuit of advancement, this sort of like uh, a sick and, and, and also the cyclical nature that seems to come from it because this apparently happened 30 years ago. And what did we learn from it? Apparently nothing is sort of, you know, the idea is that like this will happen again. And uh, who knows, maybe after the, you know, the credits started rolling, they rebuild the city and it happens again in 30 years. You know, the children are still out there. And Kay is sort of a touched child is sort of implied at the end. I think, you know, that like they used her in some way. I'm, I'm not sure, but like, I, I think that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there about uh, how humans can abuse society and abuse each other for their own gain or for quote unquote society's gain that ends up being pretty destructive. Yeah, I think that the issue of how unequal and how unbalanced a lot of these systems are and the way that that creates an issue where if someone who's been downtrodden their entire lives and for whom society just does not have a place, if that person all of a sudden is given some sort of power, is it any surprise that their response is to do something that is pretty horrible after that's been everything that they've been served their whole lives because even though we see people trying to be nice to Tetsuo in certain instances and Kaneda and the other bikers certainly try to take him under their wing it's pretty obvious that they're in a situation that is going to breed a psychological environment that if someone is given a chance they might 
not know how to stop themselves, and that's exactly what happens in the end. And I think it's telling that, you know, the, the colonel way up top thinks that he's protecting people by acting unilaterally and ignoring certain kinds of problems because he really is kind of disgusted by them. But in the the reality of the matter is that, that he's not getting is those are the problems that ultimately are going to percolate up and destroy the system from inside. Um, Ooh, so I, I was, I was, that, that's how I read I was it. following yeah. you through so much. And then we got to Colonel, which of course we're going to have to talk about him, but I, I was wondering, we know that Kaneda and Tetsuo and the rest of the gang are in a vocational school. Uh, they, they are um, in the fringe of society, doing kind of whatever they want, uh, a little bit of the ultra-violence, uh, beating up other rival gangs. This is the thrill of their life. I don't know if Tetsuo's downtroddenness is fully about the class that he belongs to. Because the, the gang itself seems to enjoy their lives. I think at 15 and 16 is the, the age group of these kids. They, they seem, they seem yeah. to have, like, this is what we do. This is what we like. We hang out here. These are our girlfriends who we kind of don't even like. And, and th this is our lot in life, and this, we're going to make what we can. I don't know if it's the class system that Tetsuo is in. I think it's kind of the, the little brother syndrome you're always looking after me i can take care of myself and when he's given the power to handle things i'm remembering the scene where kaneda and k blast in on that speeder bike type of thing mm -hmm. and kaneda says i'm here to rescue you and the it's hard to say the look on his face because it's an animation but the look on tetsuo's face like all right, you're here to save me. I'll show you what I can do now. I would say that drive is from being kind of under the thumb of a pseudo big brother that used to be a seemingly a, a good relationship, but you can see how it deteriorates through the movie, that that's his drive of, no, I'm, I'm strong, I'm powerful, and I'm going to show you. That's where that drive came from for me, is their relationship together. I can see that. Yeah, I think I, think I would agree with, I actually kind of agree with both of you into a point of it, it or rather your counterpoint, Dustin, about it. it. You don't think that it's class stuff because they seem to be having a good time and, you know, they enjoy their sort of biker gang lifestyle, but it, they don't have anything else to enjoy. It's not by choice that they enjoy it. It's almost out of like a, well, I guess we, sh <laughs> we don't, there's not much else to enjoy. Their school is, um, Awesome. Not even a scope. Well, yeah, awesome. They wrote. They wrote. They wrote "hotel" on the front of the the statue in front. Yeah. <laughs> also, I'm not sure what this. Uh, this is just something that I noticed. I actually paused and wrote this down. The statue outside of the school has like a uh, red uh, paint on one shoulder and blue paint on the other. And the immediate thing I thought of was is the the pill on the back of Canada's uh, jacket is a red and blue pill. Um. And there's a lot of red and blue in general in the entire movie. I started to write down all the things that have red in it, and I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure necessarily what they mean, unless it's just a stylistic choice. But red, blue, and yellow occasionally are in this film a lot. Um, even from blood being like neon, there's the very initial red Akira sign, like or the uh, the the title splash, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the red streaks of taillights, the sm the like smoke they use is pink. 
the bike is red. The helicopters are red. The walls, uh, like, uh, there's so much red in this. But Tetsuo's blue. And he becomes more red as the show goes on. He even dons the red cape near the end. Um, or sort of in the last 30 minutes, right? And he, like, take, you know, he sort of has the blue jacket on before. Um, so I think if you're the the movie is definitely Tetsu is sort of we're watching his descent into it um and he's who we're following through the entire time and so from his perspective i do think that there's the little brother syndrome and we're watching that sort of little little pin in his head just snap as as he gets the opportunity to show off his power you know i th- i think with uh him showing off his power which happens later i think when he realizes that he's got something if you haven't seen the movie before there's a lot of things that are great surprises nathan i know this is the first time you saw it so um not knowing exactly what is going to happen provides some extra oomph some impact to the first time that tetsuo hallucinates his insides coming out uh, of his body Oh, yeah. And then he tries to gather them back up, but it's a hallucination. And then you, you, you see uh, the idea of the play structure crumbling beneath him. At first, I think he, is, uh, he fears these powers. He doesn't know that they're his powers yet. Um, and so th- I guess that's why I, I direct this to, to you, Nathan, for seeing this for the first time, not exactly knowing where that goes. Where was like the impactful moment of seeing like Tetsuo's transformation? Was it, was it after... Calvary is kind of uh, roughed up by the other gang? Is it in the hospital? Is it when he first really demonstrates violence? What's the impactful moment there with Tetsuo's transformation? I think it's when he goes through the corridor. Oh, And yeah. <laughs> he's being attacked, and at first the guards are just trying to subdue him to bring him back to his room, and then eventually they realize that there really is nothing that they can possibly do, and for some reason, they keep on attacking anyway. Uh, very loyal guards in this super-duper secret facility, and quite a lot of them, too. But there are these just great images of him creating sphere, like spherical distortions of space around him, which intersect with the walls and push outward in a really amazing graphic way that is pretty cool. And often, they're just shown in wide shots from far away that... It's darkly lit, and you just see something happen to the other guards. This is something that I alluded alluded to earlier, where having only just now watched this movie, but seeing a lot of other movies that are in the dystopian, post-apocalyptic vein of someone developing either some technology or powers or other aspects in the aftermath of some great disaster, um, it's clear what direction it's going but the thing that makes this movie successful is not that it tries to pretend that it's not going that direction or misdirect you or anything but that it is going in that direction and dealing with the issues that going in that direction would imply so even though pretty early on it's clear okay so tetsuo is going to get some sort of powers he's going to be this scary monster it's pretty clear but the interesting thing is not really tetsuo specifically but the way that society is reacting around him and 
the way that all the other characters have to deal with what's happening. And that's, I think, what makes this movie successful, is that those whammy moments can happen, and you know that they're going to happen, but they're still amazing because of the way that it's presented in the context. Yeah, I I think, uh, like, watching the society sort of, like, view him incorrectly uh, in some ways, right, as uh, Lord Akira, (laughs) right, was, like, to watch the, the them reacting that way to it. Yeah, the enlightened, like, you know, the sort of the, the harbinger of the end times and destroy. The, the way that they were <laughs> reacting to it is really interesting. Uh, I think, for me, Tetsuo's big moment of, like, his transformation was, besides the very obvious ending <laughs> area. Was, besides that one. Um, besides that particular. Besides that big yeah. one. Was... Um, I think there was always this sort of hope as he was like going through the hospital and going through his 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 stuff that like, oh, if if Kanada can reach him, you know, maybe there will be reason like, you know, uh, if he hasn't seen Kanada yet, you know, maybe Kanada will when he gets to him will sort of be like, hey, Tetsu, are you, you know, and then like when Kanada finally shows up, Tetsuo just sort of looks at him and, you know, like says his name and then in in an attack on somebody else, like doesn't care about Kanada also being thrown up in the air and knocked over. And yeah. at that point, that's sort of the like, oh, he doesn't even care about his friend at all anymore. Like, he is gone. And with the- and I think that's where my previous statement comes from, is it's almost as if now that he's out from under his thumb, kind of kind of seen as like the sidekick, it, it almost makes me think, like, were they even really friends at all? He was kind of picked on by the rest of the gang, I will say the early flashbacks where they kind of uh, they show how they how they become friends is really sweet and uh, and you like that about their friendship. But um, it, it makes me think of, of two things. I'll, I'll say this first and move to the next one, which is talking about that corridor scene, uh, an incredible scene. <sighs> uh, I think that's where like, you get just a split second kind of crunch smush sound. And uh, I yep. remember what I wrote down was uh you know, powerful kinetic blasts are cool, but gravitational sinkholes that completely shred your enemies are maybe just a little bit cooler. Uh, it's it, yeah, it's so impactful to see like oh, just like that they are done. Um, but you know, there's there's man, and and I think Nathan said this in the beginning, like watching watching this movie now and then being able to see all of the references that came from it. I mean, at least for me, when the, there's sort of this red light going on in the background behind them, uh, when he, all the soldiers are like, you know, prepping before it just sort of cuts, uh, that corridor scene reminded me of the Rogue One Darth Vader Ooh, scene. Yeah. Right? Like, he's coming down this hallway and you, you're, you're screwed. It's happening. You know? The unstoppable force. Yep. The unstoppable force traveling through a corridor. This might have been the original. Yeah. And it's awesome. Very it cool. is awesome. Now, I, the, the hope about what if Kaneda gets to Tetsuo and somehow the path towards destruction is averted and it ends up being the opposite. It kind of accelerates. It puts it puts fuel to the fire. Like, I'll show you what I can do. And he destroys a building and flies off. Um, but I, it made me think of when Kaneda shows up and doesn't make things better. Is Kaneda someone that we can root for? I guess he is kind of a protagonist here, but it, se- it also seems to me like this is Tetsuo's journey and Kaneda doesn't really seem to help him that much. 
Uh, does he even try? Can you guys think of how Kaneda ends up being a positive influence on Tetsuo? Is Kaneda the microcosm of the Colonel in the sense that they're both doing exactly the same thing, just on different scales? Kaneda's being overprotective in a way which is damaging to Tetsuo, and the Colonel is being overprotective in a way which is damaging to Neotokyo? Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I definitely think that there's also a little bit of, well, Kaneda's our vehicle for the story. We're, you know, just following Tetsuo through it wouldn't be nearly as interesting as following Kaneda, who sort of has still gets the perspective of, you know, being uh, relationship wise friends with Tetsuo, but also he gets to be sort of involved with the resistance, you and K and, you know, all that other stuff. So he's our vehicle to being able to see all of it, really, uh, is I think mainly why it sort of follows his path through it and why he's sort of yeah. in there. Um, I don't think that I never really found myself like rooting for him necessarily, um, but I didn't want him to die, you know, like I. Yeah, he's a lead. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and he's yeah. and he seems like, like it's it's kind of presented that um and he's and he's the leader of the gang he's the leader of the bike gang um i i do like their relationship i like interpersonal relationships in movies even in this animated movie where um their tension is kind of kind of brings it to a boiling point um but before we hit that boiling point uh tetsuo actually kind of pushed himself away pushed himself further down that interstate highway and he was the first one to encounter the psychic children. I believe he he encounters uh, Takashi. Um, how do, these, these characters for? I think they presented the most variable. Like what are what's their game out of it? Um, I don't I don't think when you first see them, you see one of them who's on the run. You see Masaru, the kid in like the hover chair, wearing a three piece suit. Once again. It's seemingly confusing for me if you've never seen it before. Uh, and then you've got the precog one, um, Kyoko. Uh, how did how did they fit in? I, I think I think they've got this kind of cool overseer type of role where they see what's going on. They know where things are going. I don't know if do you think they knew that eventually this would lead to um, Tetsuo finding and uncovering the the icy vault of Akira? I get the impression that. Kyoko had that figured out fairly early but didn't didn't know how exactly it was going to happen and that the vague images that she got were the driving force between why the kids would then later decide to go on the offensive. What's not super clear to me is how Takashi's escape slash abduction slash whatever was going on fits in to the beginning because he seems to be working with the others after that and I'm not entirely sure why he would have been broken out or broken out or what that was. Is this one of the potential potential tangential threads that doesn't doesn't keep you focused on the the, the main drive of the movie is uh are these kids working with this resistance group? Is it a resistance group? Sometimes they're 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 called terrorist group. Uh, K and Ryu and that we don't I don't know if we know the name of the the guy in the beginning who's uh, who shoots the two dogs in the in the traffic jam. Um, no, I don't think we do. I don't think we do. That guy gets gunned down by three hundred soldiers. That that scene is amazing too. Like the I think the entire background is black as he's running just through the spotlight but you still see like the ne vibrant neon red blood splatters like from you know as he's running man that scene 
very, very visually striking. And we have a lot of those. We have a lot of those mm-hmm. in this movie. Visually striking movies. It, it made um, some of the superlatives hard to narrow down. The group that... It, I'm thinking they're trying to liberate these kids from government control. Does that sound right? That's what the purpose of this group is? I think that that is what the resistance is trying to achieve. Yes. Yeah. I don't know how Takashi fits into that. I Maybe they had tried... Yeah, I, I agree that that part is a little bit of a question mark. I, maybe they had tried to free him, and then, you know, whenever the guy was basically like, run, you know, be free, sort of like run away. Maybe he didn't want to be freed, because... It seems to me that there's there's like these two groups that sort of want to use these children, you know, uh, but they seem to have their own idea of what they sh- what their job is and what they should be doing. Maybe, you know, these other two uh, or how other however other people are trying to control them. They're just kind of like, nah, we know what needs to happen and we're going to do what we think is best. Uh, they're yeah. not really caring too much about the other organizations. You know? And then it turns out that at least some of the resistance members are actually working for some of the other council members and that they're in this very tangled web of different connections that people are making that, that Ryu turns out to have been paid off by someone who is really just trying to bring down the military. Yeah, I think that's Nezu. I mm-hmm. think that's his name, uh, the guy that he's working for. Um Yes, couldn't have described it better. It is a tangled web. Uh, I will say uh, there, there's student protesters. There are people that are upset about the last prime minister's tax reforms, the Supreme Executive Council. I love that there was one dude who said, we should have put all that money into welfare. And he's immediately like, he, he yelled at, like, you shut up, old man. You don't know. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Of course you would say that. <laughs> the thing that might help the people? How dare you? I think that maybe some of the threads that sort of just get lost a little bit, or maybe even some of the more confusing ones, is due to the mismatch of it being based off of a manga that is five volumes. And from um, from things that I've heard and things that I have read, the manga being five volumes and the writer of the manga is this is the director of the film as well so he got to just make his own movie of work but to fit it into two hours and four minutes there's it, it cuts out like middle sections like the movie is essentially volume one and a half and the latter half of four and five so there's like a middle section and the pacing huh. also the pacing also feels a little off to me in the middle like the underground sort of like sewer fight scenes and stuff like that. Some of it felt a little like, okay, where is this going a little bit? Like, I, I want to see them get there. It felt like it was taking time in places where it wasn't necessary um, in terms of plot, yeah, is, right? Is this just a chance for our animators to show like a, a, a their their ability to, sh- like to show that speeder with the minigun right. on the front? It's going back and forth, and it's the water is splashing. Is this just a chance to show off? Which, by the way, I loved every bit of animation in this in this one. It's all cool. It is all cool. Like I think that's the thing we can come back to. Undoubtedly, it's all cool. But the I didn't I didn't know. First of all, John, it's pronounced manja, uh, <laughs> manga, <laughs> yeah, <No>, manga, <laughs> manja. Uh-huh. Uh Yeah, somebody will somebody will say something. That. So yeah, it's manja, and um, but. I didn't know that he was the director. I, I would say, even though there's some confusing threads, I still thought this movie was complete. Uh, like, like it started with something, and what it ended with was, to me, satisfying. I, I, was, I was satisfied, even with some of the tangential threads out there. One that we haven't covered, uh, of these several different threads, is the, uh, the almost the religious fanaticism. Akira is real, and he's coming back, 
and this is what we've been waiting for. Kind of cool to approach a uh, like a religious fanatic sect when the audience knows that this is real, that this is that th this will be happening. I I, I thought that there, we, we a little later on in the movie, the during the crumbling bridge, uh, half <laughs> half of the people there are religious fanatics about. Akira the Enlightened is going to save us with fire. The other half are, like, student protesters. I actually came to the conclusion that in this movie, the protesters, the anti-government uh, sect doesn't need an identity because it didn't end up really mattering. All that needed to be present was we have government in power and we have people fighting against it. You know, yeah, some of that stuff is maybe not even necessarily supposed to be these plot threads for the movie and more of just setting you know uh like just pure setting of this is what this dystopian world uh to in 2019 apparently right is uh it's 2019 <laughs> right um which i thought was funny that they were saying this movie came out in what 1988 and they were like oh next year's the olympics in 2020 and japan was supposed to have the 2020 olympics yep. Yep. so um, surprise yeah but i i think i think some of the anti-government stuff more is just that's what fits the genre and fits that world if that didn't exist i don't think neo tokyo would be as uh impactful visually or make as much sense for this sort of destructive behavior going on with the main characters and everything else you know i, th I think that it could be more of a setting piece than plot threads that weren't explored. It's certainly interesting. It helps explain why the military is able to show up and appear in such numbers and why they might act in the way that they do. Um, and I, I agree. It, it really comes off as a sort of almost background element in a lot of areas, uh, but it certainly does lead to a fair amount of additional runtime that seems like it add up to... Yep all that much in the end um it seems like if you were to for example excise a lot of the k storyline and that that you could skip directly to having uh the other esper kids directly in the fight instead of using her as an intermediary who doesn't have any agency herself i i found that scene fun and once again cool i, I thought that uh, us using her the first time you see it um when you see that uh, Kyoko is speaking through her when she's on the back of the speeder bike and they're headed towards the baby room. I believe that's what they call it, the baby room. Yep, yep. Creepy name. <laughs> creepy name. Uh, a lot of creepy stuff in this in this movie. Um, but when they're headed towards the baby room and you see that Kay, I, I think this is done intentionally, but when she is, we'll say, for lack of a better word, possessed by Kyoko... Yep. She's got a little bit of uh, eye shadow on, um, the same eye shadow that Kyoko is wearing. Did you guys notice that? Yeah. Uh, you know, interestingly, there's a, you know, there's a scene where she's talking in, you know, she's being controlled, right? But they don't, uh, they don't let you know that she's being controlled really until, like, the last sentence that she says. And it's when she's sort of talking about, like, what Akira is and stuff like that. And uh, I remember watching this scene and just, the voice actress that plays her i was like this her uh, during it i didn't realize that she was being controlled and i thought to myself this voice actress sounds a little too old be this young rebel fighter right now and then it hits the point where it's like oh she's being controlled by the old lady 
I guess that's good voice acting then. <laughs> it's kind of a, like, <laughs> oh well, I, yeah. that was pretty good, I guess. You know, it it did what it was supposed to do in a way. Yeah, I, I will say explanation of god tier level things is very difficult to do. Um, I felt uh, from a couple months back that Adjustment Bureau in that episode that they did a bad job of explaining the plan. And and if they just chose not to explain it, it would have been better. Sometimes less is more. I don't know how you're supposed to read a like seismograph chart and realize that this is the birth of the universe. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are some sort of sciencey things in here that are like, I mean, I get that it's sci-fi and quote unquote future, right? But there's, uh, there are some things that are like, maybe this would have been better left more ambiguous. What if the scientist didn't know what he was looking at and just said, <laughs> it's off the chart or I can't understand what's going on? <laughs> yeah. That might have been yeah. less hokey than, it's the birth of a new universe. <laughs> uh, he's reading that ticker tape. He's, he's looking, oh, all the vitals seem normal. <laughs> oh, for, the, for this once in a millennium type of thing, everything checks out. <laughs> and how do you know that i've never seen readings like this before <laughs> um i would have preferred if if sort of he just left that you know thing to go look at it outside and then it maybe panned to the charts because it was kind of cool the colors were like all just singular lines you know if it just showed just like one or two seconds of just that yeah him saying ah these readings yeah <laughs> it was kind of funny there is an early scene that that does what we're talking about where it doesn't really explain exactly and it works out really well where the doctor shows the colonel the readings that that are sort of the weird circular bouncing right sort of audio looking graph and then the colonel says okay what did akira's readings look like and the scientist is like well they can't really be compared exactly it's kind of hard to do but i'll show you anyway and it superimposes like a hemisphere on top of them which like a bigger one but like the two readings have nothing in common about the way that they're graphed so it's like yeah i see what you mean you can't compare them can you (laughs) i i I actually thought that, like, because the first one's kind of like a ring, right? And it's got, like, waves going kind of yep, around it. Yep. I was, when I saw that, I was like, my first thought was, oh, it's going to grow to be a hemisphere, you know, by the end. Sort Maybe. of what happened. Because uh, we see it, like, sort of get the, the waves get, like, bigger and longer and sort of stretched uh, over mm-hmm. a little bit. But it is still in the beginning. I, I, I still liked the beginning part. I did not like as much near the end when they just kept showing it. I'm like, okay, I... <laughs> yeah I, I i get it it's crazy yeah oh, <laughs> yeah. oh show it, me what's hey, outside it's moving again this was one of the actual computer animated elements in it the the truly computer generated elements those, in it. Those so they were very proud yeah um i i'm not a huge fan in a lot of anime uh, the mainly movies really do this because their budget their style stuff the the oh man like we're gonna show rain for 10 seconds and i'm gonna make this rain look so good like you know that that's sort of just just throwing your art onto the page without any sort of function or narrative to it but just to really really look good um this movie does not do a lot of that at all no and no, i think it it's amazing for it um a different a different sort of hot director right now um makoto shinkai does a lot of that and his films are very popular because they're very very beautiful but i just feel like they lack, lack substance and akira's is nearly all substance and style speaking of style we've been on we've been on this uh art first the computer generated uh ring and orb and hemisphere the animation of this movie 
um, as opposed to, to describing acting. Uh, the animation here, I will say, we discussed how it's not, it doesn't seem dated. For what it is, it seems great, aside from the size of the forehead. I, I thought so much about the animation was even the stuff that wasn't meant to be visceral or uh, like really hit you in the, in, in the face with, with something that's gross or something that is uh, violent. Just the, sometimes it's in the smoothness of a motorcycle crash. You've got really smooth animations there, and then you've got some really chunky, kind of uh, more distorted animations, like when the, uh, the three kids, uh, Takashi, Masaru, and Kyoko, are turning into the, um, the amalgamations of toys when, he's in, oh, yeah. when he's in the room, before the corridor scene. That, that animation, wow, was that a... Uh, it kind of kind of gives you goosebumps watching that it was it was fear it was a nightmare come to life when the teddy bear like first when it's small and it sort of just first gets on the bed you're like oh this is gonna be weird and <laughs> it delivers it gets even weirder you know <laughs> like um the cars the the car reminded me of a brave little toaster yeah um, it's got that style yeah very very creepy um i think that the way they animated doors opening like the sort of like smoke effects coming in and out of doors, especially in the vault, like underneath when that when the vault like opens, they had like all the pistons sort of coming out and the smoke effects and even just light. Like there are many times that like a door would open and it would be kind of like a jagged hatch uh, like from the middle. And as it would open, the light would like barely peer through and then sh like flood the room. Uh, and I just I thought that was great great door opening scene weird thing to appreciate super doors these were incredible doors y'all mm -hmm. um great doors <laughs> hey it's just one example of how that how well this movie does atmosphere and it's everything it's the way that the whole city parallaxes as you go around and the buildings are all pretty detailed and and the the way that the lighting works in a lot of these scenes where they're chasing around and you get this incredible separation of the subject to the background where either it's this neon bright effect or like the hallway effect that I mentioned earlier where the hallway's light and then there's this sort of darkly silhouetted bit in the middle which you realize it's all in it's all in shadow because it's been pushed into the walls in this crazy spherical distortion but it's like oh that's that guy's hand hanging from the ceiling in silhouette yeah. and other parts of him in a circle around the rest of it other um, parts of him <laughs> no, I mean, there's even a scene in the beginning where in like the first motorcycle fight uh where somebody falls off or gets gets headbutted off the motorcycle right they get headbutted off and that would have been enough for it to have been like oh that's cool yeah but then they they kept doing more they had him like rolling on the ground and you see it and then you watch his arm get run over by another bike and like they didn't need to do all that extra stuff they didn't need to animate these doors and the silhouettes of things as good as they did you need to animate the fight scenes really well you need to animate akira and tetsuo's transformation stuff really well but all of this other stuff was extra stuff that is just really really appreciated it's so beautiful um and this movie was made at a higher uh unique frame count than uh most of their anime movies i think anime tv shows are like six to ten frames um and most anime movies are somewhere between eight and twelve and this one is i think 24 uh some of the some of the scenes were 32 unique frames per second like the transformation scenes and the the arm uh when he gets the metal arm and stuff like that where i'm sure the teddy bear is also oh, high up yeah there. but like the amount of 
frames in this, the amount of drawings and stuff that they had to do for it is crazy. And it shows very clearly everything. It, if the movie wasn't yeah. good, it would be worth watching it just to see the difference between absolutely what this movie was at its time. That I was going to bring up that specific moment when the he gets headbutted off the bike and then you see his arm not just get run over, but kind of break, kind of go in the opposite direction. Uh, so much of that added to, I would believe, the enjoyment of this kind of um, this viewing was appreciating the things because it's it's we, we already discussed the plot the plot you know where it's going and it gets there but the, you, you, there's a lot of candy for you to 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 watch and to appreciate uh nathan i wanted to ask you uh about the soundtrack hey this is a really fun soundtrack it's it it is a very different animal than what you would get in your typical hollywood movie of any sort it's definitely a different instrumentation a different style of how things are written out uh you get that creepy choir that always forebodes crazy sci-fi things about to happen you get the bits of the soundtrack that are almost part of the actual film you wonder if those graphs of tetsuo's power are actually creating those bell sounds but then they morph into this in into the way that the soundtrack has the percussion instruments that it's using to accomplish all these things it's i i love the way that it really works environment and goes back and forth that way so uh yeah yeah really enjoyed the soundtrack the uh that those percussion and sort of ringing sounds this was the those are this was the first digitized version of a Indian gamalesh uh, percussion mm-hmm. instrument, um, yep. and I don't know if it was exactly used. But you you had said that you had seen Ghost in the Shell before. Did did the sounds and even sort of like scene transition almost sort of like the poof, same poof, sort thing. of oh man almost it, the same thing. It the, when I say that movies movies that I have seen make me think that this was foundational for things. Mm-hmm. It's the degree to which even the soundtracks are almost you can really see where the inspiration is coming from here and it's a good thing to take inspiration from yeah i I thought it was great as well yeah so so really really successful work on that um that the soundtrack is uh, written by shoji uh yamashiro and performed by um gano yamashirogumi there was something um I, i mentioned the flashback moments being sweet there's not a lot of sweetness in this movie um and the uh, Kaneda and Tetsuo grow up in a, if not a boy's home, it's it's just a, a maybe like a boys and girls home, whatever you would call that, um, you know. And, and there is a certain community of children and how children treat each other. We know Tetsuo kind of gets bullied and Kaneda comes to his aid a bit uh, in those flashbacks. That's uh, You also see similar flashbacks of the of the three three kids and you see flashbacks of a young uh akira um and whenever they go back to that they the tone of the music shifts so uh purposefully uh there's a there's a really beautiful like flute when they're young and it makes you think like oh this is when things were better but like when things when the world hadn't changed yet um and that was that's that's something that stood out to me as they they really put care into the the additional animations they did not have the uh attention to the score when when you look at this movie as a whole i, I mentioned before it's kind of candy Ev- everything that you that you get even if it's a scene that maybe is taking you away from the direction of the of where the movie is going 
it's still worth your still worth your time. It's still worth like, oh, this is part of the world that they've This whole movie is candy and people should eat it. <laughs> delicious, yeah. delicious candy. I can't get into our superlatives without first addressing the final scene and what happens at the end. And I guess what I'll what I'll get at is we see some things that happen. Some time before that, I don't know, can any of you explain to me where uh Kaneda gets a laser he takes it when he is uh chasing after Tetsuo and he is following in all the carnage that Tetsuo is leaving behind him and it doesn't actually show him taking it but it shows him stopping at like a toll booth sort of thing and Kaneda does this kind of double take and smirk when he sees one of the guards who's been killed but he sees the laser rifle Okay. And I, I do remember when they're charging it. I remember the, the, the short scene where I think the, him and one of his other surviving gang members are charging it by, uh, by using the battery of one of the bikes. <laughs> Dustin, you don't remember hearing the da-na-na-na required laser rifle. You don't remember that It's part? dangerous to go alone. Take this. Yeah. But so we, 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 get to, we get to the culmination of the movie. We have the three kids. We have the uh, organs of Akira. We have Tetsuo with his uh, red cape and his robotic arm. Kaori's there. That doesn't seem like it's going to end up well. It doesn't. Mm-mm. So, so I, I want both of you guys to, to, to answer this because I don't know if I have one. What happens? <laughs> I, there's, there's actions that I see and um, the, the moment when the three kids are kind of praying or meditating or focusing to bring back the Akira ball. Um, Then there's, there's the, after Akira is kind of released, uh, I love when teamwork is applied. The three kids decide they need to, or the two kids decide they need to help Takashi to go into the ball, the big white ball. Um, Interesting part of the scene, uh, Tetsuo is asking for help through most of the movie. He's pushing everyone away, every single, every single person away. But he says, help me, Kaneda, help me. This is probably the only time that they that they really seem like they're trying to work for one another. But yeah, I'll just ask. Yeah, I think that was his true self really showing there, right? Like his his sort of, I'm a strong man, I don't need nobody, I look at all my powers, is this uh, facade. And whenever he's in danger, um, Kaneda help, you know? That he needs uh, it all was some of it was for show and the only reason why he was able to do that before was because of his powers and it's okay to ask for help. but it is okay to ask for help i mean that's the message i don't om- no i th- what i what I, what I think is going what i almost this? i almost asked you guys what's the lesson of this movie but i didn't and we won't <laughs> so um <laughs> so uh yeah i, I think it, so go ahead T- tell me what happens here because i i've got my idea but right. i'm not exactly sure i'm right I'm not sure that I'm right either, and I think that's what's very cool about this. But I don't think that it's possible to ignore that in this movie there are two nuclear bombs and it's Japan. Uh, yeah. That the correlation with this, right? Especially when you think of, at least from what I interpreted that I mentioned earlier on, the um, this movie's sort of theming about abomination of pursuit, you know, um, or, or creating abominations out of pursuit, right? This this endless hunger for more science advancements, and no matter what you have to do to children or societies or people to do it. Um, and when he starts turning, uh, it's not just a big giant flesh monster. It looks like circuitry almost, right? Yeah. Like it, it has a pattern to it. And I think that's reflective of science um, and like technology and that 
all sort of relates back to atomic bombs and you know that this endless um pursuit of knowledge and 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 i'm not exactly sure what the word for it this endless pursuit of knowledge and advancement isn't always good and it can create this weird mixture where it ends up distorting society it creates oppressive oppressed people it creates human rights issues and so i think tetsuo sort of becomes thematically he embodies yeah humanity of, of humanity being destroyed by this abomination of science and technology it's a very like actual representation of you know man versus nature but man is like science and it's being represented in this just grotesque gluttony of flesh and science exploding yeah you know uh, that's what i think nathan i want to hear what you're what you're saying too but but before before that john is that a common theme in other anime of uh the pursuit of knowledge and technology to replace the will of we'll say man or humanity is that common in anime? I will say the very first Japanese RPG video game I ever played, that was the core of that game, was um, uh, speeding up evolution is detrimental to the entire universe. Uh, is that a common uh, trope? Or uh, I guess trope might not be the right word, but a theme is, is we're going too fast? We're going too far. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. Yeah. Um, I would say I would say for a lot of these earlier films that pretty true um i'm also thinking of like ghost in the shell even some more psychedelic ones um um, tangentially paprika there's a lot of also anime shows that have to do with more about letting go of other external factors to be happier for yourself i think western movies do the same thing uh with that to some degree but especially with these earlier films you want to throw in grave of the fireflies too which also very directly about uh the atomic bombs uh and the aftermath that these children suffer from it like it's a hard thing for that culture to ignore, I think. And especially these earlier animes, I do think lean on that cultural touchstone uh, that, you know, that event that definitely shaped. From the time this movie was made, it was only like, what, like 45 years before? Uh, not in- 40, right, 40? Right. Like, that's not a long time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, Dustin, to answer your question, I'm going to have to start spinning a crazy fan theory slash yarn here that possibly could be disproven by a line that I missed somewhere or something. But uh, unknown to the viewer right now is that John has sub- substituted his background <laughs> on Zoom for the picture that is the beginning of this movie where the nuclear bomb goes off and destroys original Tokyo. Yes, I'm going to fall into it by the end Here's of this. Here's a theory. Why is it that the nuclear bomb blast is actually a black sphere? Is this... Yeah. Because... And this is connected to the fact that the children, the Esper children who we see in this movie, are of a very high number. What happened to the previous test subjects and what happened last time that Akira was involved in this? Because... Oh, my God. to presuppose here is that there was never a nuclear bomb that went off. The last time, what destroyed the original Tokyo was Akira the whole time. And last time this happened, it took a lot of the the other members of the numbers program with Akira. And that's why these children sort of know where this is going and know that, and, and are able to know that when they go in, these are the rules that they're going to have to follow and what's going to happen. So Nathan. that is my theory of what Nathan. is happening during that scene. So, so you, your theory is that the first 
explosion was Akira the first yes. time, right? Yes. I I, never I, a nuke. I fully subscribe to that. That's what I, yeah, I, I completely All right, agree. lords and ladies and knights of the round table, that's a three for three. I am completely on board with that as well. What this is reminding me of, uh, Nathan, I think you know I'm a huge Matrix fan. Uh, Zion, oh, you know what? I guess, should I, am I allowed to spoil other movies on the Akira episode? Hmm, I'm gonna do it. I don't know, it's 2021 <laughs> and it's The Matrix, so you probably Yeah, can. The Matrix can drink. You should know The Matrix, the Matrix can is. drink. <laughs> um, but it, it is, it is in, I believe, uh, the second one, Reloaded, where we learned that uh, this Zion isn't the first Zion, and they've been destroying it every several, uh-huh. every, every century uh-huh. or so for the last something like seven yep. centuries, and they've been increasingly getting better at it. Uh, I, com- I completely agree that I actually, and, and maybe this is showing just why it's good to have um, a dumbass as part of the round table, is that I actually thought that it was Akira the whole time, the first part. I didn't think that was a nuclear bomb. I, th- I thought that was representing the first Akira blast. <laughs> yeah, the only thing they reference it being made, they don't even say it's a nuclear bomb. They just say that's World right. War Three, but like uh, that's never really explained. And I, I, yeah, it it makes it makes more sense that it it was Akira the first time, and that's also why part of my theory was about this cyclical nature and that like it's gonna happen again. And who knows? Like I said, after the credits roll, maybe it's gonna happen in another thirty, forty, fifty years again. Yeah, like who the, knows? The, you know, mankind yeah, not. Takashi wasn't twenty three. It's closer to six hundred and twenty three. Like yeah, <laughs> the tattoo wears off after a little while. Uh, yeah. Wow. Let's get into our superlatives for Akira. Let's start with John. Can you give me your MVP of this movie? My MVP's got to go with uh, director slash writer in general. Uh, I think the world that he made in this story is the driving force for what makes everything so interesting. You know, the the animators also like just everyone working on the animation is close second, uh, but none of what they animated would be interesting if it wasn't for the mind creator of Akira in the first place. Good choice. Good choice. Nathan, what about you? I'm going to go with the character who we actually haven't talked about that much, but who undergirds a lot of this movie, uh, Colonel Shikishima, uh, voiced by James Lyon on the English dub that I, that I watched. I think that, you know, for whatever reason, we haven't talked about him too much because I think that his is another thread that in some sense is kind of tangential to the more core ideas of the film. But I think that his role in everything is a great connective tissue to explore all of the ways that this system is messed up and how the, each of the different parts of the system all think that they're right and that they're doing the right thing and just how very wrong they are and how blind they are um, while trying to be good people at the same time. So um, a great performance and a great core part of the yeah, movie. Yeah, a real core part of the movie. I, 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 I think I did want to talk a little bit more about <laughs> Colonel. My MVP is also the director who I did not know wrote the, the manja. Uh, sorry, I said it wrong, the Mongli. Uh, I, thought, <laughs> I, I thought he I, the world he created for this movie, while there were some distracting things, uh, throughout it, um, sometimes you want to be a little distracted. Uh, sometimes being a little too focused on just one thread um, isn't so interesting. And sometimes being way too focused uh, can actually kind of make your brain hurt. Um, I'm thinking of a movie like Birdman, where you never get to rest your eyes, you're always following something. Um, learning about the terrorist organizations and that people are unsafe and that the 
the main gang of biker kids. They have a rival gang, the clowns. And the clowns have like a heavy uh, boss man as their leader. And their girlfriends don't really like them. And they're at a vocational school that, that, they, that they don't care about at all. And uh, like all these little small Discipline. scenes. Discipline. I was going to say, yes. Discipline. 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 <laughs> and they just, they just take, they, they take it. They're like, oh, this, this is what discipline is. And they're used to it. Um, this world that he created was was so nice to be a part of for uh, two hours. I, I don't know if it seemed like two hours yeah. uh, when I was watching it. Well, I mean, we even spent like 20 to 25 minutes talking about the tangent, the tangential threads that don't matter. And it wasn't even necessarily negative. We were like, yeah, I wonder what those were about. And they were interesting and cool. We liked mm-hmm. them, you know, maybe a bit confusing and. Uh, irrelevant in some ways but they were like you said like sometimes you want to be distracted there's they were still fun to to be in there yeah yeah all right john uh, how about your best uh we'll call it best supporting character here? yeah mine's gonna go with who your mvp is my best supporting character is uh colonel shikishima who i for some reason every every time that he was on screen i was just like dude this is the most captain colonel guy i've ever seen <laughs> Uh, his name could have been Captain Colonel, and I would have believed it. But like, he also like it. I mean, in most anime, just like I don't think that this is a foundational piece. I just that like Akira did it first. But most sort of just like military dudes, like the bald, the stash, like that, like kind of bigger dude. Um, and he just played it so well. The voice actor for him is really good. Um, I liked almost every scene he he was in. I enjoyed. I liked a lot whenever they were like, oh, you've been stripped of your ranking command. And then he just goes, shoot him. Yeah, shoot this shoot. guy. Yeah, shoot him. I was like, he cares so much. He believes he's doing the right thing. He's just secretly a dictator. Yes, but also like, ooh, ooh. I don't know if I don't know it. if the that's answer to he's a dictator. It. If you start it with yes, but you have to you have yeah. to be careful here. Yeah. Yes, but look, OK, OK, OK. So I think that uh, whenever he says, yes, shoot him, that. And his his uh, fellow fellow soldier like just listens, right? Like he's got the right. loyalty of his guys. Like they don't oh, yeah. care if he has a rank or not; they're gonna follow him. And his presence shows in that. Ah, that's why I like presence as well. Yeah, I mean he's clearly amazing at what he does. His men are like, "Hey, how can we not love this guy? He's on the front lines with mm-hmm. us. It's great." Yeah, uh, I I will say that that particular scene where he says shoot him, uh, and within minutes he says. We're all run by puppets. Uh, join me. Uh, okay. <laughs> they said yes pretty easy. Uh, Nathan, you have a best supporting character? I'm actually going to go with another character who we kind of left out of the discussion, but who is interesting is uh, um, Wendy Lee's performance as Kay I thought was quite good. Um, she's another character whose plot line could be really interesting and, you know, deserves more exp- you know, more exploration and explanation on its own. Um, but uh, what we get, I think, is a great window for how um, Kaneda is brought into things and uh, her whole view on how things are working. Uh, John, we're two for two. Uh, I learned his name was Colonel Shikishima. I don't think we learned that his his name in the movie. I don't remember it being said. I don't think so. We did have to look it up. We did both immediately say I'm sure oh, the it's Colonel. Somewhere. The Colonel, for sure. Yeah, so I've been calling him Colonel Badass the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Colonel Badass Captain plays by his own good rules. Guy. <laughs> Captain Good Guy. Uh, he doesn't like dealing with the Supreme Council. 
With one command and uh, one order and two dead men, he unites the military and the government agents uh, just with his uh, machismo. I'm going to go with something that we didn't mention. I think he gen genuinely cares for the well-being of the, uh, you've been calling them the Esper kids. Uh, I think he cares for them. Uh, I'm not saying he didn't. Sorry if I, if I created a, a false dichotomy there. Uh, I, I, he just but said I, he was a dictator. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think he generally, genuinely cares for the kids and um, cares what's best for all people. Uh, he hates the bureaucracy of the of the Supreme Executive Board and uh, generally just uh, great, great to see win on screen. Okay. How did he end up in this world? The way you know what I mean. The way he is with everyone else's sort of principles and stuff like that. I almost I, I want a spinoff of. Captain Colonel. He does survive. Uh, he does survive. Yeah. Yeah. I want a pre. I, I want a prequel though. How did he get to us? My impression is that he's the creation of the military system. That this is the guy who would rise to the top of the military, and who the military love. Politicians hate kind of naturally. Mm -hmm. Without without him trying, you know, he doesn't need to do all these kind of Machiavellian tricks because he is the perfect guy on his end. He's just been trained all his life to think about society in a certain way, which inadvertently, when push comes to shove in this situation, makes him a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what he says kind of goes. All right, I see that, yeah. I see yeah. what you're talking about now. <clears throat> but at, at least, hey, we were upset that we didn't talk too much about him uh, before, but we got, some, we got to say what we wanted to say about uh, mm -hmm. Captain Colonel. Uh, hidden gem for you, John. What's your hidden gem of this movie? Uh, mine was, uh, I think I talked a little bit about it earlier. I think, uh, Kay's voice actress, I don't have the name of offhand, but I watched the sub, um, so this would be the Japanese voice actor. When I was explaining earlier, like, I, I thought, like, oh, she sounds too adult. She's supposed to be, like, a rebel kid. Oh, wait, you know, she's being voiced by the old lady. That's actually really good. Uh, and then I started to pay attention more, because that was originally gonna be, like, in that moment, I was like, maybe this is a recast for me. And then it very quickly, immediately jumped into a hidden gem, uh, which I thought was really cool. Ooh, um, surprise. Yeah, and um, I think in general, her character is something that is a good addition, and I really liked having the little bit of exposition that you get, like, through the Esper kids, like, you know, or through her mm -hmm. from the Esper kids. I think it was, I think it was needed. I think it was uh, necessary. And I liked a lot of, in the beginning, um, Kaneda sort of like trying to get her, you know, like flirting with her and just sort of like the dynamic of like how he recognized her. I, I just thought that she was a good addition to the film and she helped the pacing a lot too. She sort of tied, without her, it's unclear how Kaneda sort of like gets involved with the rebels and you know, uh, getting to Tetsuo and stuff like that. She's, I think, a very vital, important glue to everything. Yeah. Uh, this is Mami Koyama, is the voice actor for K, the original. She's great. A hidden gem. A, 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 a near recast turned into a hidden gem. Uh, well, well done. Uh, Nathan, hidden gem for you. I'm doing this almost entirely for one scene, although he is hilarious in all of the scenes that he's in. I unfortunately couldn't find a proper name for this character and therefore can't find who voiced him in any of the versions. But the prophet slash the religious cult leader <laughs> yeah. who is proclaiming Akira the Enlightened will save us with 
cleansing fire and then about 30 seconds later is yelling save me as he's be- as he's falling down a bridge and one guy tries to grab him and there's just this like oh he's gonna get sick oh no he got hit by a car never mind that car is on fire uh <laughs> yes by the flaming uh, yeah. car going yeah. down yeah yeah the prophet with his amazing hair yeah, and everything bro, else bro i actually uh almost made that my hidden gem when he got smashed by the flaming truck um here's <laughs> mine uh, and, and I, I i gotta say about uh, we have talked so much about the tangents um the bike gang doesn't the, the gang itself doesn't really matter in the second and third acts it's kind of setting up what these kids do uh, when they are, you know, not in school. And, uh, but there's a there's a cool little ritual that's done after Yamagata is killed, I believe killed by Tetsuo underneath the bar, where Kaneda hops on the bike and drives full speed at a wall and then jumps off and destroys it. And dis- yeah, isn't that, I love like, that. when it comes to, like, this doesn't have anything to do with this movie, honestly. His bike yes. dies with him. You I'm going to send him like, his bike, cool. I think is the line. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and, and, and it is. Uh, like, does this, could this be in any other movie or show? Yeah. Um, but I, I thought that Kaneda kind of drifted away from still being the leader of the gang later in the movie. But when he sees a friend, he loses a friend. Uh, he decides to send his bike with him, which I thought was a, a cool hidden gem. Now, we actually talked about this. Uh, we were going to skip recasting, uh, replacing replacing someone. But uh, John, did you have a, a, a some type of recast? Kind of a uh, how do you how do you finagle this recast situation? I've got a complaint, Uh-oh. Dustin. We've got a complaint. <laughs> my my issue is with if I'm gonna watch a two hour movie about a bike gang and. Tetsuo and Kaneda are reasonably visually distinct enough, but the other like three dudes in it, like there's a scene where they're like by a river, um, uh, they're like or or you know like an embankment of some sort, and they're all standing there together, and Kaneda's with them, and I straight up couldn't tell. They're all just different Kanada. heights. Like like they they have I'm not kidding the same hair, the same face. <laughs> They're all wearing either like just one orange jumpsuit or just one red or just, you know, like I just think that they could be both voice acting wise more distinct and visually more distinct. Like, why not? Why do they all have to look almost literally exactly the same? Like, I would like to see them just sort of portrayed a little bit differently, maybe even just one hair in front of his face more like just the hairstyle change. So I can tell who I'm looking at because I found it confusing in a few scenes. That is but that's that's my recast. That's a good visually. that's a good way of, of approaching the recast for an animated movie. We can call it a redraw, you know, or a, a redesign. Yeah, yeah, there's a redesign for this one. Let's move on to uh, this is this is always a tough one. Uh, John, your best shot. I mean, the very one is the transformation and um, sort of stuff in there. I think what I'm going to go with is when Tetsuo realizes that the orbital strikes that are hitting him are coming from like a space station. He does this sort of like look up and then begins to like float and you're like, "Oh wow, he's going for the space <laughs> station." Like it sort of it sort of hits you like, "Oh, that's how uns- that's how strong he is. He is literally going into space." To get this thing and i think that the shot of him when he first goes into space and he's sort of glowing red and just stands on the soul yeah. like cannon is uh, 
that, that I think shows how strong he is and uh how vindictive he is to anything that's going to interrupt yeah. what he's doing and i think that is powerful. a great shot that, uh, yeah yeah it, uh the the orbital beam of soul uh coming down i had actually mm-hmm. I, I, it, it, it escaped my mind while we were recording uh nathan how about you best shot we alluded to it earlier a little bit but the shot of the terrifying teddy bear coalescing from all the other toys is one of the moments in the film where really get the full benefit of the frame rate that they're using and the fact that they're not just using it to create smooth motion they're adding detail in it you get this incredible moment where the toys kind of fuse together and then this teddy bear is there and then totally smoothly out of that then one of its arms has a snake head on it and <laughs> yeah and like a poor tetsuo is like oh my gosh what do i do <laughs> yeah he he bounces out of the bed and things don't get better no they do not that is that is a good shot um i think it now falls to me to say that uh tetsuo when he is overloaded with his power when it's consuming him and he is just consuming mass and just getting so much bigger uh we can describe that whole scene but the shot uh, is so good that Colonel Badass and uh, Kaneda are awestruck, mouth agape. They show you that they're not moving. They're just, oh my god, this is happening. Th- this is happening for real. Um, the, the, I think the one that stands out, it's not the tendrils for me. It's not how uh, when someone gets sucked in, it kind of almost looks like little mouths. To me, it's the large, the, the, the most rapid vertical transformation where it almost looks like us like a sickening uh infant's head do you, you yeah. i think you know yeah. exactly what i'm talking about because it, it's accompanied oh, yeah. with a scream oh yeah it, it, you can't forget during that when uh uh kaori's head gets yep. squished in the inside and uh they show you the blood like they you know just sort of you just hear this yep. <laughs> and yep like, <laughs> yeah yep that's what happens kaori yeah. <laughs> yeah and it is uh memorable um if not for um you know pleasant reasons Uh, i think that that is the best shot um let's move to the best overall scene uh best scene we'll start with you john i think yeah the best scene for me has to be the thing that we were just describing um the sort of the final transformation and we've talked about it a few times now so i'm not gonna depth with it but that uh, that's the moment where there is no going back the point of past the point of no return. There is no like, you know, Tetsuo saying, I'm sorry, I'll control it anymore. Uh, it is now on a straight path to the climax of the film. Um, it's great for that. I, I think that it, it when, when we were talking about like the soul cannon and like, you know, this giant babies and <laughs> it's all so odd. And I enjoyed the fact that there was at least one scene also in the movie where Tetsuo says like, this is all nuts. Am I dreaming? Like, this is all so crazy. I enjoyed mm-hmm. that that scene was included because it all is so crazy. Um, so favorite scene has got to be the transformation. Yeah. Nathan, what about you? Best scene? The best scene for me in this movie has got to be the scene immediately after the amazing corridor fight we mentioned earlier, the baby room fight where Tetsuo gets in. He's mad. He's been put through this nightmarish vision sequence with the giant toys, and he just wants to find out answers and tries to force these Esper kids to tell him what, what they can. And just at the moment when he seems poised to totally 
destroy them. The colonel shows up and the doctor shows up and they try to talk sense into him, but they can't do it. And then Kaneda managed to show up with Kay and he tries to talk sense into Tetsuo and can't do it. And Kay can't help in any way. And just realize finally, like John was saying earlier, this is the moment when you realize there's no hope for Tetsuo. He's a total megalomaniac. Yeah, by full this speed point, ahead. And he's not any kind of control. Yeah, yeah. And there, there's a little bit of warning from the other kids. Like, you can't use your power that way. Like, maybe you can't. But Tetsuo is not going to be told anything. Um, my my best scene uh, is the nightmare scene with the uh, the hallucination. Well, I guess these aren't hallucinations this time. Uh, there's two parts about the scene that stick out because we have dis- discussed the the giant uh, bunny, the giant bear, and the car. Uh, the two points are uh, that car you said reminded you guys of something different. What was the car that that it reminded you of? Oh, uh, the brave little toaster. The brave little it toaster. It does. It looks uh, just like it. It looks like the evil vacuum cleaner in Brave Little Toaster. It's very strange. Hold on a second. The vacuum cleaner is not evil. The vacuum cleaner is just grumpy. We're the, the evil thing is the air conditioner. The air conditioner. Oh, that, is evil. that's correct. The well, you know, I, I'm not gonna lie. As a child, <laughs> they were all scary to me. Pretty much all of them were scary, all scary except for the toaster. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, th- that actually reminded me of. Uh, it's strangely another connection. It reminded me of Benny the Cab from uh, from Roger Rabbit. Uh, it looks it's almost exactly the same shape as Benny the Cab. Uh, the other part about that scene that I like before moving on is when he says "need water." He puts his left hand out, and the glass of water slides into his hand. And I think that's the, maybe the first time you see his power manifest for real, not in a uh, not in a hallucination sense. And so when you see, second. might be the second, might be the second, but. Um, he just slides, the, the water slides into his hand. He doesn't even realize it happened. It's just like, oh, he, he wanted yeah, something and it happened. Yeah. Uh, I both thought that times, was very cool. both times they're subtle enough that he doesn't realize what's going on. What was the first one? I can't, I can't think of it. So I'm, and, and I, I say this, I could be wrong. It could be an animation thing, but I'm a little bit convinced that in the prior scene, when he's just been rescued on the street and just before he has his hallucinated guts scene, Mm-hmm. He's walking away from them, and he f- seems to get really light on his feet for just a moment. He like floats up onto the tips of his toes, and then he comes down and has his hallucinations. And I'm convinced that he was Whoa. just starting to fly, and his powers were just beginning to manifest, and then he freaked out and had all these hallucinations because he's terrified of what was just about to happen. Okay. Even, even in the hallucination that he has right before his gut spill out, like the ground opens up beneath him, so he would be floating. If if that was real, it, he would be floating. And so, like yeah. in 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 reality, he sort of like almost embodies floating. You know, with his his feet yep, kind yep. of on the ground, mm-hmm. and yeah, he yeah. and he freaks out and has all those hallucinations. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that I think I I want to I want to rewatch that scene now. Luckily, this is a rewatchable movie. How yeah. about our best wardrobe or makeup moment for you? Uh, these are all animated, so they can kind of do whatever they want. When I think of animes, they're either wearing like uh, karate outfits or school outfits or giant mechanical robots. Uh, what's the best <laughs> wardrobe or uh, type of uh, moment for you, John? All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go into my fan theory about this color stuff. Um, there is so much red. The first red that we see is literally the title splash Akira, and it is in big giant red letters. That's all it is, right? And Tetsuo's is Tetsuo is blue. The Esper kids also all have a color. One of them is blue. One of them's p- like a pink. One of them's green. And the only one that is red 
is Akira. And I think that that has to mean something considering that Tetsuo's blue from most of the most of the movie until he starts to, you know, even his medicinal stuff is sort of a blue. And then he puts on the cape and that's the moment where he's like actively fighting people almost for the sake of fighting. Like uh, before in the baby room fight, it's sort of because he wants knowledge. You know, he's trying to find uh, Akira. He's trying to look for uh, answers. But at that point, he's almost enjoying it. And when he puts on that cape, you can tell that he's having fun and it's red. And I think that that's got to mean something. I'm not even in turn sure entirely what. Um, but there's too much color symbolism with Akira. And I don't think that it's not on purpose that when his sort of like ghost version shows up for a moment that he's red um considering all yeah. the other red there's too much there for it to mean nothing yeah i'm not uh, yeah the, i mean this movie is dense there's a lot of stuff in it i'd, I'd have to do a, probably a couple rewatches to really formulate this theory but i know there's something there and even if it wasn't for that him putting on the red cape as uh, sort of this the big wardrobe change was uh, is still a very good off. Throws it around his neck. You're like, oh wow, himself right now. <laughs> he is feeling it. How about you, Nathan? Best wardrobe or makeup style moment? I'm going back to the the prophet here because <laughs> hey, that that Elvis costume, the sunglasses, the big hair. It's hilarious. It's just hilarious. it's great. <laughs> that guy rules. Uh, he is. Uh, on screen for I think probably a minute and five seconds, but if that, <laughs> if that. I, it's, it's, I think it's less, but he's still good. <laughs> he is good. He is good. Um, I was actually gonna say something about about uh, Tetsuo's cape, um, but <laughs> this this movie is funnier than what you expect. Kaneda's pretty funny, and then there are some certain moments where you know, like the 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 spiritual leader, like some of the things are pretty funny. Uh, there's a moment when they're caught by the when when they're in the police station, they're being interrogated, and um, a police officer's wearing the exact same uniform. And this is what it made me think of: is uh, Kaneda calls one of the officers pops, and the officer's like, "What do you mean pops? I'm only 25. I'm not even married yet." And like it's kind of like a like he's kind of burning himself. Um, and immediately after that, the one uh, protester comes out with a grenade and says, "Grenade!" Red grenade. And he comes out and he says, "For the freedom revolution," which literally could be anything because we don't need the revolution to actually have a movement; it just needs to exist. And the the um, grenade goes off. It's just like a smoke grenade. And immediately, like five or six different uh, cops in their like exact same matching uniforms all come over and just start beating him, just like ganging up and beating him up. And the animation of all five of those guys is different. It's not like repeated. They all are doing something different. And so the moment of uh, seeing all those exact same dark blue uniforms, uh, beating up the guy that just tried to destroy the entire police station, uh, I don't know how close that is to the wardrobe uh, aspect of it, but it's, it did stand out to me. Uh, let's get to changing one thing, John. One thing can you can you choose to change? What would it be? I would change this the sewer fight, uh, not the one where I guess there's kind of two. Not the one where Canada first sort of uh, gets on um, Kay's good side. She shoots the first time. It looks like uh, not that one. It's the one where they're like invading, uh, and they end up getting that like helicopter bike. Uh, that whole thing felt a little drawn out, and kind of the sake of animating something or filling some time or I, i'm not sure but and i think some people are killed off and you end up with just mm -hmm. Canada, k and uh, ryu anyways 
you know, like all the extras are killed off and it's like, okay, it, it just felt a little, that's my least favorite part of the movie. Like if I was to put the movie on, uh, or, you know, if I, if I were to turn on the TV and see Akira on, I would, uh, fast forward through that scene. If I could, I would watch the rest of it, but I would fast forward that one because it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Would you cut out the entire meeting up with the resistance sort of subplot area? So to the point that K and or K would at some point tell Kaneda like, oh, my contact Ryu, I think that he's in this building. We need to you need to help me break in and and we can work together and that they can go in without going through the whole Meeting up with the, with the resistance yes. group, getting mistaken for a spy, all that sort of stuff, and, and just uh, cut to the chase. Yes, yeah. they like lock him in a room, right? How did he get that key? That's like someone's random apartment, right? Like, did he just have the <laughs> key on him? Uh, there's that that area. Yeah, you're right, and I think you know, you're asking because you also think, man, eh, we could have sped this up. You know, it didn't need this. Didn't need to be in here, and I agree. Yeah. Those things remind me of the speeders on the planet moon of Endor. What about you, Nathan? What would you change? You know, this is a much more minor piece. This isn't really structural to the... But I want to figure out some way for Canada to not feel like he just brought a knife to a nuclear weapons fight at the end. Because we've watched... And he should know by this point that Tetsuo has defeated guys in the military with much bigger guns than this laser rifle by this point. He's taken down tanks, he's taken down, like, guys with six laser rifles at the same time, and he picks up (laughs) a laser rifle of a guy who has died because the laser rifle didn't work. (laughs) It wasn't good enough. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna make this happen. Um, This guy who's trained to use it. (laughs) There's a little bit of plot device with, like, when he uses the laser rifle, it works. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes no sense. So <laughs> this is one of those kinds of things where I think less would have been more in this case. Where I think that Kanada shows up and tries to reason with Tetsuo again more than he does, and like maybe later it becomes clear that Tetsuo isn't responding directly to the laser rifle in an aggressive way and therefore it might be not unreasonable to use such a thing versus earlier in the fight when the laser rifle is clearly annoying Tetsuo to the point of risking him just killing Kaneda immediately which Mm -hmm. probably should have just you know based on what we've seen before just happened yeah yeah uh the power is there let's uh it I, I heard what you're saying. Um, mine is a little interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I don't have a lot of anime experience, but one thing I know about anime is that they tend to do a really good job of when people power up and uh, and destroy things and um, explosions happen or beams of force or light happen, that anime tends to do a really good job at this. And in this movie, I think what was done was uh quite muted uh when we have our big white anime orbs uh demonstrating what an explosion is um we barely see akira at all Uh, we just know that there's like this white orb of of whether it's gravitational pull whether it's some type of energy force i'm i'm uncertain as to what it is and here's the reason why i said that this was kind of a, a an interesting thing is that's what i would change is like show this being of ultimate power, unleash some of it. You have the resources, you have incredible animators. Show them, show us how incredible that could look. And then I stepped back and said, or maybe keeping it subtle the way they did. uh, One of my my runner was when they bring the body of Akira back, 
All you see is he, he takes like one half step before it fades white. And I'm thinking now to myself, maybe this decision to change one thing, maybe it's perfect the way that it is. Just kind of keeping it muted. It doesn't have to be Dragon Ball Z power-up level. You know what I mean? You, you know, interestingly, I mean, did you did you get reminders when Tetsuo was like, uh, I think the first time I was in the baby room when they're doing like the mind power yeah. fight sort of thing and like rubbles rising? Did you get like, uh, my original thought was, this reminds me of like Super Saiyan stuff. Like this is what it looks like to me. The sort of just screaming and rubble uh-huh, rising, yeah. you know. And uh, and then I looked it up and I was like, oh, Dragon. But Dragon Ball came out in like eighteen or sorry, eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> Dragon Ball came out in nineteen eighty seven or eighty six or something like that. And then I looked it up, and the first Super Saiyan was in nineteen ninety one. Oh wow! Like Dragon Ball existed, but the first Super Saiyan was in nineteen ninety one, just a few years after it. I'm like, I wonder if there was any inspiration in there. Gotta be. Yeah, there's know, always rocks breaking up in in those. Uh, let's mm-hmm. let's get to our final superlative, uh, John. How about you give me the best quote from Akira? Now you're a boss to a pile of rubble. I loved that. When uh, Kanada says that to Tetsuo, when, uh, you know, kind of near the end, uh, before the big transformation, and Tetsuo's just like, uh, to saying, you know, you always thought you were the boss of me, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have to listen to you anymore. And then, yeah, Kanada just responds like, well, now you're a boss too, to all this rubble, like looking around yep. him. And I just thought that that was, um, I thought it was great, very impactful. I think it hurt him to, yeah. you know. Puts him in his place a little bit. Mm-hmm. That is a good one. That is a good one. Uh, how about you, Nathan? Hey, I'm going to call out some of the comedy that, uh, that Dustin, you mentioned earlier a little bit. That police station scene has a whole bunch of really great lines in in it, but I just love this line delivered to a innocently smiling Kaneda. All right, the story is you and your friends went out at night on your bikes <laughs> to visit your dying mother. Another bunch of biker hooligans called the clowns attacked you. They hurt your friend. You lost your temper. And that's why eight of these clowns are now in the hospital. Great, great story. Great story. Yeah. It's different in the dub and the sub, I I believe. But I think in the sub, it's correct me here, John. I know you watched the sub. He says something, oh, and now she's riding the bicycle over the mountain, which must be some type of colloquial phrase of like, oh, she's over the hump. I, I guess so, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that's how I took that. They say over the hump literally in the That's right. The, that's one of the, the differences. Dub. They say over the hump in the dub, and in the sub, they say, oh, I guess your mother's riding the bike over the mountain. Yeah, as in like, oh, she's no longer sick anymore, I guess. So you don't have any, you know, that, that that's what it seemed like yeah, to me. Yeah, she's gotten through the worst yeah, of it. Yeah, I, I, do, I did very much. <laughs> that was a, that's a pretty good one to pick, uh, Nathan, because I... I mean, whenever they, that guy does go on that story and then Connor's just like, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's about right, officer. He says something later, like, uh, he's, he's, I think it's the, one of the government agents in a black suit, like, where are you going, a funeral? Yeah, yeah, that funny, and, and the movie's funnier than, than you think. Yeah. Um, my best quote actually comes from the previously unnamed uh, spiritual leader with the Afro, um, but it's not a comedic thing, it's, it's, uh, I think it's poignant. Uh, that which is called science perverts providence. That which is called progress encourages extravagance. That which is called civilization devastates the spirit of man. The time of atonement is upon us. Are your hearts prepared? So uh, the idea that there could be uh, kind of a religious sect devoted to this. Um, <clears throat> in I don't even know if Akira is science comes from science or if that. Uh, inherent power is you're born with it i I don't know that but uh that 
I think one of my why it's one of my favorite quotes. Um, yeah, you know how how do how do the people even know Akira's name if he wasn't a thing from the first explosion? Right, right, right. Like, how would they know? The the government knows the name. Even the, just the, the name. Gov- the government yeah. knows the name. But I, I think they even say uh, they say how do we even know oh, Akira started the the Third World War? Um, so yeah, there's there's some ambiguity ambiguity, but uh, it's. It's still one complete film. Uh, we are going to rate Akira. Uh, but before we do it, John, do you have any type of plug for it? Lords and ladies and knights of the round table, I have a, um, a charity that I'd like to plug here to you. If you are anything like me and want to donate to charity or happen to, like if you're pass, you know, uh, passing by somebody on the street and they say... Uh, you know, $5, $10, and you do that. Uh, but, you know, with the last year, it's difficult to be out and be presented with these in, um, these situations. So what you could do is go to critrule.com slash foundation and donate to the Critical Role Foundation. Um, 85% of the funds goes to uh, their partner nonprofits. 10% of the funds goes to emergency funds, such as disaster relief, um, things that are unexpected, and only 5% to administrative and operational costs. And at least for me, the best thing about it is I want to donate to charity. You can do a one-time thing. You can do a monthly thing. Um, so if you just want to do 10 bucks every month that goes to it, and know you're, no, at least $10 every month is going to um, leave the world better than we found it. I think people will appreciate that uh, the foundation itself uh, provides the breakdown of where the money goes. That's uh, often a reason why people mm-hmm. make the choice. Sometimes I would consider the cowardly choice not to donate is because they say they don't know where it's going. And those, those details are very helpful for giving. Um, thank you for that. Thank Absolutely. You for that. Let's get our ratings. I've got mine, but we're going to start with yours. John, let's rate this movie zero to five stars in half star increments. I'm going to give this one a four. I think, uh, I think it's very good. I think that some of the issues with the pacing in the middle and some, uh, some of the extra characters being maybe a little bit more fleshed out, as we've talked about, would have probably given it closer to two, uh, five. It's, it's, it's really close to being a 4.5 for me, but I, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe on future watches. Maybe when I figure out that color thing, it'll become a 4.5. But... Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah something it, it kind of comes down yeah. if it comes down to the colors i, I understand you can be swayed right many ways uh the secret code mm-hmm. of akira we're watching colors yeah how, how about you nathan uh your rating zero to five for a lot of the same reasons as john just mentioned i'm going with a three and a half here i think that this movie is set successful in a, in a lot of ways and does a lot of creative things and has a lot of really amazing animation moments um, but again, some of the pacing issues in the, the middle section and some of the, I think, questions that it raises without, fu- without feeling like it really wants to deal with or really answer them, uh, certain amount to be desired here, but still very enjoyable. Okay. So you went three and a half. I actually, I was thinking of how to describe this. I was going to say artistically sloppy. I was going to say, uh, a beautifully disheveled with, with the, Things that aren't explained and the things that the, the directions that the movie takes you uh, before you get to what you really want, which is uh, an incredible payoff and an ending that uh, leaves you with, uh, if not more questions, at least um, just some incredible visuals. I actually started the podcast with this at a 3.5, but after talking about some of the things we loved about it, I've, re- I've, I've changed it to a four. This is a four star movie now. Um, so uh, overall, pretty good rankings. Uh, that is the end of what we have to say about Akira. But we need to pick a movie for next time. I have three options for you, Nathan. I'm going to read through them here. 
Option one, let's go with uh, maybe we do Snow White and the Seven Dwarves from 1937. Exiled into the dangerous forest by her wicked stepmother, a princess is rescued by seven dwarf miners who make her part of their household. Option two, Beauty and the Beast, 1991. A prince cursed to spend his days as a hideous monster sets out to regain his humanity by earning a young woman's love. Or option three, Finding Nemo, 2003. Gosh, 2000, yikes. After his son is captured in the Great Barrier Reef and taken to Sydney, a timid clownfish sets out on a journey to bring him home. We've got three options. Nathan, what say you? You know what we're going to have to go with? It's going to be Beauty and the Beast from 1991. Definitely. You're singing them now, too. All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The music comes out <laughs> when you got Nathan and Dustin on. All right. But hey, John, uh, exactly. you brought so much to this recording. Thank you very much for uh, accepting when I thought to have him. Thank you guys for having me. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. And I got to rewatch Akira, um, which I don't know if I would have done. Um, if it wasn't invited specifically to be on here, and now it's giving me more motivation to rewatch some older stuff too. I'm gonna go watch Ghost in the Shell. It adds to the too. fun. It adds to the fun. Mm -hmm. All right. Remember, yeah. all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, we invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. That's at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Hey, producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Nathan? I'm not bad. I'm just drawn this way.